this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Today, we are offering five conversations from episode 34, our discussion with Stephen Harrison and Mazen Nuruddin reviewing important drug development presentations and posters from the Easel Congress 2023, plus a vault episode addressing a similar topic after last year's liver meeting from AASLD. This final conversation covers a range of topics. Jordan Schottenberg starts it by discussing the importance of safety and some thoughts about dosing strategy relative to safety and initial tolerability. Stephen Harrison picks up on this issue and then goes on to consider whether the drugs we're talking about here, dual agents, have the impact on cravings for alcohol and might be successful in a broader set of patients. He then goes on to identify two concerns for the agent class, suicide alleviation and possible amounts of lean muscle loss, both of which need to be explored further. Jorn notes that lean muscle loss might be particularly critical in the study of patients with cirrhosis who are frail in the first place. Stephen continues by discussing a review of the frequency of lean muscle loss with GLP-1s, suggesting a 20 to 50% loss in many cases, and Louise Campbell comments on the possible psychological effects of this weight loss. All this leads to my final question. What have we learned in the last month that might affect research or conceptual thinking going forward? The topics each of us choose vary widely, but the concepts and all the thoughts around them are stimulating. This conversation covers a lot of ground on drug development, analysis, trial results, and the upcoming increases in importance of omics and artificial intelligence. It was a great birthday present for me from some of my favorite surfers, and I hope it's a present to you as well. It's quite a lot to digest. Very exciting to consider. So sit back, listen, learn, enjoy. And when you're done, join the dialogue in our LinkedIn discussion group. Jörn Schattenberg. So my understanding is also the safety, Stephen, is crucial. And you said the safety day was very tolerated and very positive here. And you, you choose a step-up strategy that was um, uh, seemed to be right for this drug. In clinical practice, you probably titrate a little different. But of course, study protocols got to do as they propose it. What I mean is in clinical practice, if somebody doesn't tolerate it, well, you can go slower, go back and then come back up. I think that that might also be something that's happening in the future. Stephen Harrison. Yeah, and I'm not sure that the companies ironed out that dosing strategy completely. I mean, it might be that even the 1.8 needs to be titrated, or in some patients, it might be better tolerated if titrated. So, you know, I think the original thought was that the chemical scaffolding of the drug allowed it to be released a little more slowly, and that therefore the AE profile would be a little better tolerated. And that may in fact be the case, but I think the jury might still be out on whether or not there's additional benefit to be gained by titrating trading the lower dose, the 1.8. I don't think the 1.2 is going to carry forward, but uh, jury's still out, I think, on, on 1.8 and 2.4. So um, I think the other interesting thing here is where these drugs potentially could be used outside of a pure mazzled or MASH population, and that is the AUD metabolic arena, because I think what we're beginning to understand is these drugs might have impacts on cravings for alcohol. So be interesting to see where the field evolves relative to that. And I think the nomenclature uh, change that we did really opened up a whole new field for study. And that is that population of alcohol use disorder with metabolic dysfunction. Now, there are two issues, though, that I think this whole GLP double and triple agonist field needs to be thinking about, or at least needs to explore in more detail. And that is some of the data coming out around suicidal ideation. And is that really a concern here or not? I think we need to do some more work to run that to ground. And then the second one would be there is some some suggestion that maybe there is more lean mass loss 
than was originally thought, that uh, there was original thoughts that this was all fat loss, very little lean muscle loss. Um, some more recent data suggests using DEXA scan that that might not be the case. There might be more lean mass loss than originally thought. And this gets us to the very mainstream phrases of Ozempic butt and some of the other comments being made about what's happening with weight loss here. And we initially chalked that up to, well, if you're losing weight in a hurry and you don't go to the gym and tighten up those gluteus maximus muscles, that you're going to have a saggier rear end than than otherwise. But but maybe there's something to this lean muscle mass. And I think it would behoove companies doing development to do DEXA scans to look at that more clearly to measure not only the visceral fat, subcutaneous fat, but also the lean lean muscle mass as well. Well, I, I reviewed that um, ratio at one point for a talk I gave at ASLD, mostly uh, related to cirrhotics, because there the biggest concern was around you know losing additional muscle mass in a uh, fragile population anyway. So when we did the semi-F4 study, that was one of the concerns. It didn't have any clinical impact. I'll buy, you know, this was a small study. So I, I think something that's important here is that we maybe should ask for to include some functional measures, which are not easy. Uh, I mean, the, the static measurements of, of muscle mass and lean and non-lean uh, body mass is, is should be added by, you know, a simple hand grip strength or something maybe. Um, not sure the regulators will look at that, but it can give us some, some idea how that will affect the patient's everyday life. And then, of course, we don't want to see trips or falls in general, which could be a safety signal that we as investigators, of course, have to start capturing a little bit more stringently. Roger Green. I'd be way out of my skis talking about the science of what you just said. But A, it feels to me in general that when you look at things, law of unintended consequences would make sense that there would be some kind of lean mass loss associated with that that you didn't expect because the body is rarely as perfect as we think it is or, or as perfectly delineated as we think it is. While we're on the podcast, I just did a PubMed search. And now this is a little bit old, but it's an endocrine metabolism published in 2019, a review of the effects of GLP-1 receptor agonist and SGLT2 inhibitors on lean mass in humans. And without getting into the details of the trial, and, and I haven't reviewed this to look for critiques of how rock solid this data is, but their quote is, in over half the studies identified, the proportion of lean body mass reduction ranged between 20 and 50 percent of total weight lost. So that's not a small number. Uh, and as Yorn, as you highlighted in cirrhotics, that that becomes an even more important issue. And should this be, you know, this class of drug be used in cirrhotics? I think the jury's still out here. I think we need to we need to be cognizant of this data that's coming out. We need to run it to ground. We need to do the appropriate studies, as you as you mentioned. Uh, particularly in those with more advanced disease where sarcopenia is a risk factor. Well, yeah. Also, Stephen, in a disease where a lot of what you're talking about is postmenopausal women, right? They're shedding a bunch of bone mass anyway. So if DEXA scans are showing that these agents have a, have an impact, the um, in the worst sense of this word, synergy between estrogen loss and everything that goes along with that, and then a drug that might take a significant amount of your lean mass away, you might be, as Bjorn pointed out, subjecting people to falls, and we should be looking at that a lot more carefully than we have been. Um, off those numbers, I'm kind of staggered that they're that high and no one's talked about it. No, I agree. I think we need to not, you know, bury this in the sand, but in everybody's spaces and places that they live and work in, we need to make this an endpoint that needs to be uh, looked at more closely. Louise Campbell. 
I think I'm just going to add a little bit extra to that. The other thing is when we talk about weight loss, when we talk about some of the positive effects of these medications, a lot of people do not want to change body shape particularly. So in some of the medications that you've discussed earlier, Stephen, the ability to add different medications that have different outcomes on body shape, weight loss, lean mass, actually gives us that better plethora of medications across the board if they all pass the tests. So it gives people selection as to do they want an injectable versus an oral. I know lots of people, and the women particularly, they want to lose their liver fat. They do not necessarily want to lose their curves. But there's also a lot of guys who do that as well. So this whole altered body image and the psychology that goes into it that can lead to really big distress. We see it in back surgery. We see it in all of those rapid weight loss. And we do need to take an awful lot more input into the psychological effects of what we're doing long term and how that affects relationships, how it affects working lives. And I think so hitting on those sort of outside areas that are now coming to the fore with some of these medications because we're getting to that weight loss level or we're getting to the rapid loss or we're getting to lean the mass that affects different things and obviously particularly in the transplant population or those um, decompensated cirrhosis then these are really important things that we haven't touched on in a lot of these studies but there are some interesting posters available at some of these conferences that we can probably delve into at a later stage on things like that and stigma and there's an awful lot of collateral areas that can be evidenced and researched a little bit more deeply from um, that perspective from my point of view i may not have all of the insight into the medications themselves but i think those are the areas that i get to see an awful lot yeah i think that is good and as we roll towards the bottom of the hour and wrap up louise i think one of the points i take out of what you just said except i think you said this already is that the more medications we have the better able we will be to match medications to exactly what people want to achieve for themselves at the same time that we're focusing about what we want to achieve medically because if something does what we wanted to do medically but the patient says well i don't want to look like that i don't want to feel like that i don't want to be like that then all you wind up with is non-adherence and then probably in fact people won't even talk to their doctor about it again so the breadth of options i think is hugely important that makes good sense anybody have closing comment and if not i'll make up an ending question because what the heck all right so go for it okay fine i think what we just did was really interesting which is as people think more about what all those drug results mean we're going to get the secondary questions and maybe even tertiary questions about how's all this going to apply can can you see a reason where a, a space where the events of the last month changed the conventional wisdom about how we should be thinking about drugs or left open questions that people haven't asked yet that might turn out to be important over time in the same sense as what we just did? I mean, I think the, the big struggle that companies are having in drug development right now is how do they get a fair shake at efficacy if the goalposts are moving relative to baseline drug use for underlying comorbid conditions? So, for example, when we first reported the data from Efruxafermin and even from the more recent data with Pagosafermin, yes, some of those people were on GLP-1s. They had to be on a stable dose in the Acaro trial for three months. They had to be on a stable dose in the Pagosafermin trial for six months. But those were predominantly diabetic doses of GLPs. You know, terzepatide really has kind of come on recently. Wagovi has kind of come on. So semaglutide doses for obesity have kind of only been mainstream for the more recent past. 
So if you're developing a drug now, do you eliminate GLP-1s at all from your trial or do you accept them? And if you accept them, do you accept them for a three-month period, a six-month period, a nine-month period of stability? And do you accept them in the setting of a minimal amount of weight loss? So for instance, yes, we'll take a GLP-1 as long as it's been stable for three months and there hasn't been more than 5% weight loss. That's some of the ideas that are being tossed out there. So I think we have to understand in drug development that there has been a seed change in the way we manage underlying comorbidities. It's not just with insulin or metformin or an SGLT2 or you know, an oral saphonia or a statin. Now we're playing with even obesity doses of GLP-1s. We know that they do have an impact on liver fat content, whether or not they leave a big fat dent on this planet, the name of fibrosis in particular, and NASH more generally, is yet to be determined. But if you're a smart drug developer, you're going to build that into your paradigm. You're going to allow for that to happen. It doesn't mean that we found a cure for fatty liver disease or NASH or fibrosis with the GLPs, but it is going to be a tool in our toolbox. And in drug development, where we're developing drugs independent of combination therapy at the beginning, we need to understand what the impact of that is relative to another drug. So it's just something that we're grappling with right now in the field, but it's something that I think we'll understand and get past. And there will be a, a time, I think, where vast majority of people we, we put in a trial are going to either have experienced a GOP-1 or will be on one. And uh, right now, it's only around 10 to 15% of the trials that are reporting. I suspect at ASLD it'll be more around 25%. And beyond that, maybe at NASHTAG, more like 40% or so. So it's something that, that's out there and that we'll need to deal with. Absolutely. I agree, Stephen. And uh, do not as a sponsor, eliminate this treatment option for your patients. It's not, uh, you know, it's not real world. It's not what's happening outside there. That was already a pretty complete statement. I would say I add in that my concerns are maybe a little bit around that we've learned that safety is the most important uh, in that class drug. And even if you have efficacy, you will have to show a very safe approach. And that's also a good reason to not combine drugs early, in particular, if you're producing GI side effects, because you might aggravate something uh, from the GLP-1 uh, or, you know, have a spillover on your on your compound. So clearly stability is the way to go. I think I prefer six months over three months, although it can be uh, bothersome for patients to wait to be enrolled in a new treatment paradigm. And again, I you said it remains to be shown. I haven't seen any good data showing fibrosis regression on liver histology. Even some of the big bariatric surgery cohorts didn't show complete reversion with big weight loss. So there is something we got to address in the liver and promote fibrolysis or regression through a mechanism um, that probably expands weight loss by itself. Um, so I think I'll just say I'm aligned with your comments and, and, and expand a little bit on that by what I've just meant. Louise, what do you think? No, I can't disagree with what the guys have said. The only thing I would say is that it's exciting that we are getting a broader spectrum of just medications and not just injectables. I'd also like to see that any of these um, medications used in obesity or diabetes also have more liver assessments in patients in real life. I would love to see, obviously 5 
scan in all of these clinics, whether you're using Wagovi, because we know it doesn't work in cirrhosis. We're seeing programs now rolling out around the world where people are just being prescribed Wagovi and given shipments with some follow-up, but not a lot. So therefore, we're missing diagnosis underneath. We're missing liver histology. We're missing knowing. And it may well be too late at a later date. So this is valuable information that I would like to see collected by these companies, but um, whether or not that achieves anything, but it would add to the knowledge that we have from real world evidence. So that would just be a call out to those companies to let us have a better workup of these clients that they've got into the liver space. Interesting. The forecaster in me says that what I'm hearing is that you could actually slow the rate of growth of the MASH part of the pandemic through the use of GLP-1s, but that they're less likely to play a role in the solution or they'll play less of a role in the solution, that if we can get everybody to be taking obesity level doses, fewer people will progress, maybe. Yeah. But that once we get to progression, I'm right where you are and is on, on the importance of keeping on researching fibrolysis because I, I said I said this a couple of weeks ago, Stephen, and you said it wasn't that simple and you're right. But I think there's a conceptual view a few years ago that if you could deal with obesity, you could deal with the problem going up and then you could deal with the, we could deal with the problem of uh, reversing, reversal as well. And it's starting to look like reversal isn't merely, is about a whole yeah. set of different issues than what obesity is. I agree. So, which fellow shareholders, that's, that doesn't mean this isn't a good thing to invest in. It just means that that may be a better thing to invest in because drugs that work on fibrolysis will have a more clearly identified place. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page from which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. Next week, we'll be back with more discussion on major stories from the Easel Congress. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you again on the podcast. Bye-bye now.